the 18th or was that the other one that was the other one wasn't it uh hold on give me give me give me a second this is one of the parts we actually edit out it won't be edited though that'll be the best part about it oh no i'm definitely going to leave this part in here because i said this is one of the parts we edit out Hey everybody, it's Microphones of Madness. I'm Rodney. Over there, Steve. I'm not Rodney. That's right, you're Steve. That's true. Um, today we are talking Craig L. Gidney's A Spectral Hue. Um, probably by the time you hear this, recently released from Word Horde. Yes, it's either recently released or about to be released. Right. So, with that in mind, um, I know... We probably have a few new listeners to the show. And just to kind of let you know a little bit about what we do, unlike some reviewers who read parts of a book, excerpts and whatnot, and then do like a blurb or a really short review, we read the book cover to cover and kind of go into detail discussion of what we like and what we don't like. More more of a two-person book club sort of thing. Right. There's uh, going to be spoilers. We try right. to avoid them, but there, there'll be spoilers. Yeah. So consider this your spoiler warning. Uh, we are going to try to avoid them, but over the course of dis- discussion, spoilers are going to just naturally come out in the flow. Right. Uh, we don't script this. We don't edit it to any extensive degree. So Much to our chagrin. Well, you said you wanted it to be like free jazz, so there it is. <laughs> every every single mispronunciation every single um is in there i do cut out like pauses longer than one second every single time i stutter oh yeah i i I loop that sometimes (laughs) it's funny because i was uh there we go i was watching a baseball game last night and the Mm -hmm. color commentary kept on going i i i i i i (laughs) I was like (laughs) I was like, I, I hear you. I feel you, mister. I totally feel you. So now you know a little bit about us, a little bit about how we do things. If you are new, thanks for listening. Uh, if you're old hat, you've figured all staying. that out by now. Thanks, thanks for, for staying with us. Yeah, thanks for staying with us. All right. So Craig L. Gidney, a spectral hue from Word Word Press. Really, the first thing to say about this book is that it is a weird tale in the classical sense of the term weird tale. Um, Mm -hmm. For those of you who don't know what what that means, back in the day, there was no genre of science fiction, fantasy, horror. All of that was rammed together into into the pulp magazines under like weird tales or amazing stories and stuff like that. And there was a lot of mashups between between genres this book does fall into that that earlier tradition of the the old style pulp stories that kind of don't really fit in with a particular genre all right generally with like the weird tale you have like some sort of other that is uh causing distress to the narrator or narrators and that's really what this is about and in the traditional sense of the other in a weird tale, um, all the negative connotations that you associate with um, that time period are 
front and center. Uh, otherness is defined by skin color, uh, sexuality, stuff like that. Right. Um, the, a lot of the H.P. Lovecraft, Robert E. Howard, who are, you know, masters of the form, um, you know, that's their bread and butter playing on their racial fears. Right. So this book kind of flips that around. Right. Exactly. It, it flips the script on that, that old school vibe of uh, the weird tale. And we have a cast that is African-American. Um, and many of them are also homosexual. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's not treated in, in such a salacious manner. It's more kind of a matter of fact thing. It's very, yeah. very modern in its, in its take. It's uh, who they are. Right. And very, very refreshing. Uh, you see these type, you see uh, stories and these types of stories that still kind of sensationalize uh, what folks generally like to refer to as the other. Um, I, I prefer to refer to it as world outside my window, which yes. brings us to the setting of this particular tale because it is <laughs> the world outside my window. Yeah. More or less. I, um, I actually got a P PTSD from, from the setting. This book is set on uh, the, the eastern shore of Maryland, uh, close to where Maryland and Delaware uh, meet. Yeah, my thinking is because it's it's on the marsh, right? Mm -hmm. um, Ocean City is fairly close by, mm -hmm. um, a short bus ride away. I'm thinking it's like Dorchester County, like around um, Cambridge. Mm -hmm. That would make sense. Um, full disclosure, I used to live in Easton and St. Michael's, which is brighter in that area. Right. And, uh, I've had nightmares. <laughs> I continue to have nightmares about that area. Um, if, if you live on the Eastern shore, it's not my cup of tea. Right. Just leave it at that. And, uh, since you were full disclosure there, I live in Baltimore on the West side of Baltimore and my in-laws live in ocean city. So it's it's a track that I've traveled several times. Route fifty. That's right, getting out that way. So so yeah, it's a it's a landscape that uh, Steve and I are are fairly intimately familiar with. Um, I I don't know how well it's going to translate to somebody in say Kansas, but well, but it, it does it does work because the the setting itself is a central character in this narrative. Yeah, and um, so Gidney does a really good job of painting a picture of the setting. Um, he's very, very, and I noticed this early on, um, very liberal with his use of um, color adjectives, literally color adjectives. Any object that's randomly found in, in the book um, is a, a color is described, you know. He makes mm -hmm. it a, a big point. To the point where um, all the main characters are also associated with colors, except for one. Mm -hmm. um, but you have characters with names of Iris, Lincoln, all all evocative of of color. Hazel. Hazel. Yeah. The only one is Xavier, and, mm -hmm. and maybe I, I can't. I don't associate any color with Xavier. Right, but Xavier is also the outsider. Uh, we should true. also we should also say, you know that this setting is, is vivid probably because uh, Gidney is from D.C. Right, and I'm sure he has experience with the eastern shore of Maryland. Yeah. 
Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, everybody, right? Everybody goes out, you know, to the Chesapeake Bay at some point, whether they're going toward Ocean City or Assateague or Chincoteague, um, or going or going up to uh, Bethany Beach in Delaware or whatever, something like that. Yeah, or or even just coming up, you know, north of Baltimore, you know, toward Hava de Grace and stuff like that. Right. You, you're still got to you got to go through that 50 corridor to get to all of those places actually speaking of which um you know you talked about the ptsd from living on the eastern shore um i used to help operate a motel in white marsh and <laughs> and the the property of this place actually backed up against part of um you know one of the bay estuaries mm-hmm. and so there was a backyard area and then there was a cop, a stand of trees, and then you were in this marshland. So it was like, yeah, <laughs> I, I brought back some memories for me too, some good memories and some not so good ones. But you know, that's that's the way memory works. That's true. So this the novel begins. I'm with, still smelling chicken shit. <laughs> Purdue Farm, not a sponsor. <laughs> I won't even give my customary yet. I don't think I'd take money from Purdue. Um, we didn't do that with Word Hoard either. Oh, yeah. Word Hoard's not. Three, two, one. <laughs> All right. So we have this art student, uh, Xavier, who uh, travels to the town of Shimmer, which is a fictional town. It's probably in Dorchester. In Dorchester, probably in Dorchester County. Uh, to do part of his thesis on a pair of artists from that area uh, whose work is somewhat unique. Uh, We have Hazel. I I forget the last names. There's a lot of names to have to remember in this book, uh, who is a quilter and she produces quilts or they call them tapestries, uh, kind of abstracts, but still evoke the, the image of the marsh around shimmer. Um, also, we have Shadrach, and I believe his last name is Grayson. Uh, he, <laughs> not that Grayson. Uh, he was a painter. Uh, Hazel Whitby. Hazel Whitby and Shadrach Grayson. Shadrach is a cool name, though. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I I, I like that name. I don't like I don't like it shortened to Shad. Makes him sound like a fish. Right, or you know, some somebody at the country club. Wouldn't that be Chad? Well, Chad, I'm Chad with a C. Uh, both are artists. Uh, they're type of a, a kind of a folk art, uh, primitism, primitivism. Yeah, there's sort actually of um, in Baltimore. There is a museum hmm. in uh, Federal Hill. I want to say. Yep, the American Visionary Art Museum. There you go. That specializes in this kind of art which is um, generally untrained artists um, like you or me who make art. Right. And, and you know, there's value in it mm-hmm. uh, beyond, you know, the, the normal um, rubrics of, of value for art. It's, it's common people art. Right. And, and they, they are the, I guess the, the, the unwitting um, founders of a movement of this type of art 
where um, it's heavily into use the use of purple mm -hmm. um, and and pink tones, and it's very evocative of the marshland, right? Uh, to the point where it's um, disturbing to some people. Yes, and right, and the, and it all revolves around the town of Shimmer. It's like right. Shimmer had its own art movement, right? And and strange enough that that this would happen, but Shimmer is not even a one horse. Right. I mean, if, if you've been to the Eastern shore, if you've lived on the Eastern shore, you see these like little unincorporated towns that just happen to be there where, where, you know, there's a, a few roads and a couple of houses and that's what Shimmer kind of is. I mean, mm -hmm. it's not even um, a touristy town. Right. Right. Like St. Michael's is. Mm -hmm. Or Ocean City, or something that has a draw to it. Uh, right. Shimmer just happens to be there, and you have this museum that's there, but nobody goes. Right. They have a museum set up for this particular group of people. Xavier thinks there's something really cool about about uh, particularly Hazel's art that uh, he wants to, much to the chagrin of his you know professors. Yeah, he, he's an um, art history student who is going to do his thesis on uh, the Shimmer artists. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, his actual faculty advisor is like, oh, God, you know. There's, you're crazy. You're crazy. There's nothing going on with that. And uh, another young lady who opposes him, uh, more of a more modern type of uh, character, is very much, you know, no, go for it. Do something. Break the rules. Go across right. the boundaries. Make it happen. So, so right there, you have kind of this interesting interplay of of Xavier's influences coming into this narrative. Is that you know he's he's being pulled in two directions. Yeah, he's being allowed to do what he wants to do because that's the rules of the game. But you know these these people in in positions of mentorship. He's getting these uh, mixed signals. He's getting these opposite uh, pulls. Like one, his actual faculty advisor is is like the devil on his or angel on his shoulder, and the other lady is like the devil on his shoulder, and they're both whispering in his ear. No, don't don't do that. Don't do that. oh yes, do that. Right, explore but it's, it's, it till your heart's content. It's almost like um, like when you watch an, an old slasher flick when you have the old coot. Saying Camp Blood, it's Camp Blood. You can't <laughs> go into Camp Blood. It's Don't go like there. That. You know, you have like this cautionary, um, you know, message from the faculty advisor that it, it helps to 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 set up, you know, tension uh, because you know who cares that this guy is going to, you know, shimmer, right? right? How how does that you know, set up tension in the book. Well, it's great because his his advisors are like, you know, telling him don't bother. One of them, one of them, you know, there could be something there, right? So you know, you get that 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 a little bit of a hook. But you know, like like any good horror tale, uh, when the old coot says don't go there, that's where the serial killer killed seventeen children one hot summer. Yeah, that's when you go. Right. It's like mm. when when you know when the weird guy marks your van with the sign of the of um 
the butcher or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's keep on going. And if that's kind of what happens here. He, you know, you know, if you think about it, just the data that he has, and, and he has a connection to these artists. When he was a kid, yeah. he saw um, one of the, the quilts and um, it, you know, it moved him. Right. So he, he definitely has like his own connection to it, but in the, in the grander scheme of things, if, if you're an artist and you, you know, you want to make a name for yourself you know, academically, right. Why would you go to Shimmer? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, Xavier also, you know, wasn't an actual painter at one point, but he decided that he preferred to write about art. All right. Cause he sucks. Well, he basically said that his, well, his art doesn't have that um, spark in it that um, people, some people who might be technically um, not as gifted as he is mm-hmm. have. And right. you, you, there's definitely a nice um, discussion going throughout the text of, you know, authenticity and art. Right. And what, what makes, you know, art valuable. Mm-hmm. And where, where where do you get your ideas from as an artist? Because uh, that's a huge thing is, you know, how all these quote unquote shimmer artists are making their art. Right. And speaking as a bit of an artist myself, one of the things we like to blame it on is a muse. Yes. And, this- and we find and we find that uh, that's true for the shimmer artists as well. <laughs> yeah, it definitely plays with that idea that there's like a a, a force that that takes you over and does mm-hmm. spoilers art for <laughs> right you become you start doing art just for the sake of the art it's it's a it's a creative mania right and and yeah you know it's there were certain depictions of in the book of how this creative mania descends on people and yeah it's exactly you know the kind of process that that I go through uh, regardless as to what form I happen to be doing at the time, um, because you know you're just compelled. You know you have to do it. It doesn't matter if it sucks. It doesn't matter. You know you're not painting the Mona Lisa. You're not. You know you're not going to be Jackson Pollock or you know you're not going to be Edgar Allan Poe or anything like this. But you you're just compelled. Something is inside your head and making you know you do the thing. Right. And, and, and they definitely um, go through great pains to tell you that Hazel Whitby um, and, and the rest of these, these artists aren't painting the Mona Lisa. Right. <laughs> and that like some of it is um, one guy, his, his shtick was he painted bottles. Right. Painted in uh, decorated glass bottles. Uh, right. Another one, um, used dolls Mm -hmm. she Mm. kind of remixed dolls right and all in the service of of the the muse the muse uh there's one central theme you mentioned the uh the purplish color but it's a very specific purple Mm -hmm. um or possibly fuchsia that has a supernatural quality to it hence the title a spectral hue right uh this this color is the color of what we see in the book as the marsh bell orchid right which fictional flower well there is a there is a marsh orchid uh that's native to uh the UK uh some places in Asia and stuff like that but they're 
isn't one that I'm familiar with or could find in my quick bit of research that grows in the Chesapeake Bay region. No, and that's what makes this kind of even more eerie. Mm-hmm. Um, is oh, is that um, this flower seems to be pretty ubiquitous in this town. Right. They have some growing outside of the museum. They grow wild in the marsh. Uh, and they're, they're particularly, they're kind of a disturbing flower. Yeah, I mean, uh, they're described as um, almost violently phallic. Mm-hmm. But but also, uh, yes, violently phallic is that. But there's also many references to this plant also being very feminine as right. well. well I mean, that's so it's a flowers have both. Right. Flowers get to have both. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Lucky them. Sorry. Lucky flowers. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> I'm okay. You could go tell a flower to go fuck itself and it could happen. It happens all the time. The bees. <laughs> yeah, so so you have these uh the marsh flower. Right. And it's the it's the subject of a lot of the art, uh particularly Hazel's quilts as this right. flower. Well, well you have the, the flower being superimposed with this mysterious uh woman. Mm-hmm. Right, in sort of an optical illusion. Yeah, uh, where where the the painting shifts between the flower and the uh the woman right and those more um susceptible to these things um notice it Mm -hmm. um sometimes like violently notice it um where some of the characters you know lose themselves Mm -hmm. um interestingly enough uh iris one of the characters um, who who can see uh, auras and ghosts um, has has it kind of explained to her when she goes to a uh, a voodoo shop, right? And and um, you know, you, I I can't remember honestly if um she is told outright. I think she is told outright how um the Loa you know ride people mm-hmm. because that's you know and without, it without getting too into it, yeah. Uh, that's a that's a big part of the, all this, right? So, so you have that aspect in there as well. Overall, I would say this is kind of a a, a fairy tale of sorts. Um, that kind of a, a quintessential American style fairy tale, because yeah, it, it is a melting pot of different influences coming together. Because you have you have the way the Loa ride people, you have this kind of uh, she-like existence here on the marsh um, with a, you know, this little bit of a dreamland that everybody who experiences these paintings hallucinates a version of the Shimmer Marsh that is more like a dreamscape or an alternate reality. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I would go so far as to say that, yeah, it's a, it's a, it is an American kind of fairy tale, but with a with a huge African influence, like a really big African influence, mm-hmm. um, just you know, just voodoo and loa and and its roots in West Africa, right? Um, and and the fact that you know a lot of the backstory of this is um, you know deeply rooted in in you know 
slave culture life and slave culture um that you know the 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 horror aspect mm-hmm. of this you know comes from um just the pain right and, and of being ripped from you know your homeland and looking for you know your your home mm-hmm. and 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 finding these elements these supernatural elements taking purchase on the foreign soil yeah and and that also becoming home as well um you know truthfully even though i was reading this and and the setting is clearly mid-atlantic and it becomes this kind of mid-atlantic gothic setting um that's a really good way of describing it yeah yeah you've got a mid-atlantic gothic and eastern shore gothic on right see i i I would like to say Southern Gothic <clears throat> since Maryland is below the Mason Dixon line and is technically the South, but being from the deep South originally and Southeast Louisiana, you know, it's really hard for me to really think of Maryland as the South. Well, these are <laughs> about as South as you're going to get in Maryland. Right. <laughs> but, but with a few, but with a few tweaks, you know, and this is where the, the, familiarity with me comes from is that you know this is a lot of a lot of these like beliefs that that go into shaping this narrative you know that's home for me right well i mean and a lot of that is you know rooted in uh west africa Mm -hmm. you know just voodoo voodoo and uh santeria via from west africa via the caribbean Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know that was spread by slave culture yes you know i mean you you people get ripped from their homes and they don't automatically just convert to christianity you know their their deep held beliefs mm-hmm. um don't go away and are passed passed on to you know the next generation right right and you know yeah of course there's going to be some um mingling of culture i think that's how where santeria you know gets its its uh thing from i might be completely off but i mean you can't you can't deny that and that that's why i say it's definitely like an african-american story oh definitely i mean notwithstanding that all the characters are are black and the author is also african-american um but just like culturally as well. I mean, it's not just one of those things where, you know, um, you substitute your own, well, what am I trying to, where um, the character could be anyone, mm. you know what I'm saying? Right. You know, um, it is culturally in the DNA of this story, you know, is Africa, right. is slave culture. You know, right. it's definitely that story. Right. Um- yeah, Xavier, Xavier, I could not substitute myself for Xavier while reading the story, but he could easily have been somebody I went to college with or smoked pot with or something like that. So it's like that's that's kind of the familiarity for me is like this this is somebody I could have known at some point or some somebody I might know now to to put it that way. But right. Yeah, overall though, you know, that's just what you get you get this this very it's this hybrid story that has so many in like a gumbo it's a fiction gumbo 
uh, that that suffuses so many things in here. Uh, you know, there's even there's even reference to you know the ogre um, who lives in the swamp. Well, the, I mean, being then, being a, a woman of Scottish descent. Right. Well, I mean, it's not like um, slave culture existed in a vacuum. There, right. there were white people involved. Well, obviously. <laughs> exactly. Because no one came here as a slave by choice. Correct. Um, so, you know, there, there's definitely, you know, there's going to be that influence as well. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I, and I think that it's hard to talk about this without like going full in to what actually happens. Right. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. But I think that the the negative influence, there you go, of the masters combined with just, you know, a frightened child mm -hmm. um, and tales from the old country and tales from the other old country, you know, Africa and, and Scotland combining to give, you know, you this this uh, gumbo, I guess, is, is a good way of putting it of, um, you know psychic energy mm -hmm. yeah i i would definitely agree with that um unlike some some stories by by certain writers uh slavery is depicted in this book so you know if if that's kind of a trigger for you there's your trigger warning uh not in not in lurid detail uh it's, yeah, we, it's we've definitely read stuff that that is a lot more harrowing mm-hmm and it no nor is it romanticized in any way. Nope. It's it's very matter of fact. And if, if that is are, kind of a refreshing treatment of the subject. Yeah, that, well, if you're a not all white people kind of person, mm -hmm. you're probably gonna have problems with with uh the slavery aspects of it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but you know, you probably would have problems with a lot of the stuff anyway. So right. Like these owners are are shitty, but they're not as shitty as these other owners. <laughs> but but they're, they're still shitty. shitty. They're, they're still pretty shitty. shitty. I mean, just just the fact of of owning people, owning human yeah. beings, you know, is just makes you shitty. Yeah, it it really does. It's um, it's odd because the like you said, it's matter of fact. Um, mm -hmm. It's as not judgmental as you can get away with without you know not being judgmental does that make any sense mm -hmm. yeah um because he's no in no way is um he's saying that the situation was good he's actually saying quite the opposite right but it's, but it's subtle it's you know um there's nothing in his language that condemns anything but you know just the fact that it's there and and what happens to these people mm -hmm. um in and of itself tells you it's shit right it it is it's the the detachment of the artist right it you know it's not not an idealized situation but you know it's realistic and and it, it works really well in the in the, over the course of the narrative it does because the the ramifications and the consequences of of all of this um happen years and years and years later Mm -hmm. Um, and that's really where the, the, the weird and the horror is right. How these things persist. Yeah. How, you know, the, uh, the sins of the fathers are, it's weird because the people who actually 
pay the price are people who don't deserve any of it. Mm-hmm. it yeah, it, it's um, I guess that's like a lot a lot of horror in there as well, um, because the 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 characters who end up, you know, affected horribly uh, by what goes on um, aren't necessarily bad people. No. Um, they're not getting their just desserts or anything like that. Yeah, it, it's not like that. And and I think we, to, in, in modern horror storytelling, we expect that now. Do you know what I'm saying? We expect the bad people to be punished and the good people to be rewarded. Mm-hmm. Or at least not die. <laughs> right. And that's not what happens in this book at all. The, the, the weird part of it... Um, lashes out I, I won't even say indiscriminately because it's very discriminatory how she lashes out um when what she's looking for in her quote unquote you know victims um right. and they aren't necessarily the people who deserve um to that right but on the other hand you know this is not a a, a tale of good and evil and such like no, that. no it it isn't it's 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 just odd because it it is um, counter mm-hmm. to um, what we get a lot of in, in horror fiction. Right. Where we, we have like, um, you know, bad people are punished. Mm-hmm. Good people are the, the survivors. Right. And that's not what happens. No. You could almost say that this is kind of a, an addiction parable. Yeah, you can definitely say that. You know, so, so there's multiple layers that you can look at at this. Um, but I mean, and, and all of them work. Yeah. If you, I mean, if you want to go further with this and say that, you know, um, modern situation for black America, you know, uh, the people who are paying for, for, for that mm-hmm. don't deserve what they get either. Like abject poverty, um, institutionalized racism and all that. Nobody deserves that either. Yet it happens. Right. And, and the same goes for um, the LGBT community, mm-hmm. uh, since yeah. very strongly represented in this book as well. And they have had history. I mean, as we're recording, this comes a day after fucking armed Nazis show up to a pride event in Detroit. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, crazy. And shots fired at mm, a uh, pride event in Washington, D.C. And there was a guy in New Orleans with a fucking gun during their pride event. And so, yeah, it's it's very much, you know, along those lines. You you have, you know, these and 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 these are African-American homosexuals as well, who are often ostracized within their own communities. Mm -hmm. So so it's like you kind of get double shafted. Right. You know, because so, you have you have some homophobic bastard in your own neighborhood, and you try to get away from that, and you come across some racist white asshole somewhere else, and right. you know you get it coming and going, mm-hmm. and you know, and and these are the type of people that we have in this book, and all of them converge in this location. You know, that's kind of far and away, away from all of that shit. Yeah, but is firmly like rooted. The Eastern Shore is the most tolerant place, um, right? In the world. But, 
but this community is isolated enough that you know they keep to themselves right you know following that classic uh weird tale trope of the isolated society it is definitely an isolated pocket um you know in an isolated pocket because it's not like people go to the eastern shore on purpose Mm -hmm. (laughs) sorry People do. I mean, they, people go there all the time. It's a huge tourist industry on the Eastern Shore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry, Justin Steele. We know your favorite uh, faux places in Salisbury. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's definitely got that that weird tale structure to it. You know, isolated community. Um, and even further, it's an isolated community within an isolated community. Mm-hmm. You know, metaphorically and physically, um, and you know, shit happens, and the people who least deserve it are the ones who who pay the price for atrocities committed a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Now that we've discussed uh, what makes reading this book worthwhile, <laughs> let's 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 talk about a little bit about what we in, ended up not liking about this book. Okay. You can start. Oh, I can start. Okay. Ah, all right. No, I'm kidding. I'm. It's not like I have this like big list. Um, narratively speaking, I really felt like the first half of this book uh, was was spinning its wheels a lot. I I agree with you, and um, I I think it took a little bit too long to build mm-hmm. to um to get to the interesting stuff. And I understand you have to, you know, you have to develop character and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think that it, it kind of was slowly building up um, for the first half of the book. And then as soon as you hit the halfway point, something snapped on and then it just went into overdrive. Right. Exactly. Uh, it, it did really shift gears around the halfway point. Um, I did find that in, in my mind, uh, the characters of Xavier and Iris were, were the most interesting. Um, and, and even to an extent, the, the secondary character of Tamar, who is a major part of this narrative, even though she's not really in this book right. directly. The presence um, of Tamar. Right. Is, is felt as, as she is also uh, one of these artists, but she is one that is undiscovered undiscovered and she's actually one who um escapes mm-hmm. right so so you have that aspect oh i just let drop a little hint oh you bastard i know i'm sorry craig um mr gidney i'm sorry for spoiling this shit out of your book steve lives in boston i do she come up for our straight pride parade so we can go and make fun of the assholes together <laughs> oh my god we live in a weird fun call me i'll give you his address <laughs> you and your, will too your spoilers and and that's that's really my main criticism of of the book is is that it does seem to to you know, run in place a little bit in in the first half yeah, um, once I would agree. Once uh, once it hits that stride, though, it, it it goes pretty nonstop till the end. Now, 
as far as you know this book uh being difficult it's, it's not difficult to read this is a book that you can finish within a couple of days it's it's you know that's that's not to say anything about you know the actual wording in the book it's you know it's a credit to Gidney's skill as an author. Yeah. It's also because you just finished reading four Gene Wolf books in a row. So that's right. Everything looks like it's like written in like, you know, super easy prose. That's right. I can like, look at this thing. I can go. It's like, open it up. Boom. I'm there. But (laughs) yeah, after Uh, Gene Wolf is like putting weights on your back. While you're like waiting to go up and you're swinging it and it's like, you know, it's hard. And then, you know, it's your turn up and take the weights off and you're ready, you're ready to go. You swing this fast. That's right. It's like, uh, yeah, putting on a weighted vest and running up to the top of a mountain. And then now we are taking off the vest and running back downhill. Yeah. So, but still, I mean, the, the first half of the book aside, the pacing is, is well enough done. Uh, that yeah, you kind of float along. You're you're carried along by the narrative, mm-hmm. and from from beginning to end. So that's that's always a, a good sign. Um, and it and it makes the first half of the book that you know I did criticize for pacing, you know, that much easier to take. If it was more of a ponderous uh, prose offering then yeah maybe that first half of the book maybe would have been more egregious but no the 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 light-footedness at which we can approach this and and bounce along through through the narrative is 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 a, is a saving point to it yeah now that is definitely one of the my main criticisms of weird fiction especially old weird fiction in general is it's a purposeful ponderousness Mm -hmm. where you know you just like the pacing and the choice of words um tends to be heavy right um almost detrimentally heavy and you get a lot of pastiche that that is that way as well and we've Mm -hmm. talked about this before on the show um and yes just just the fact that it, it breaks away from that you know while still maintaining the things that are are um, I guess signature of the of the work itself, you know, he he doesn't stop, you know, describing things by color and and color is very important in the overall narrative of this. Right, you know, it's definitely w- one of the things that catch your eye. Um, the, you know, the off white walls of certain rooms and stuff like that. Right, right, and um, and so and how this one color is pervasive. Uh, yeah and odd yes and it, it doesn't it, it doesn't sacrifice that when it when it picks up you know no. what i'm saying that's not where the uh the tone change happens isn't at the sacrifice of you know what he's trying to do structurally as an author right exactly you just it, it's almost like he got all of the background out of the way you know the setup mm-hmm. it's not the background but the setup putting all the characters into where they needed to. And once he did that and he could get into the meat of what's going on and the story, that's where it picks up mm-hmm. its pace. Right. It's like sit, setting dominoes up. Mm-hmm. So, so the first half of the book is, is setting the dominoes 
and then we get to a point where you flick the dominoes and everything just exactly and without giving away the end uh i will say that it does have the the classic classic weird tales ambiguous ending yeah it's definitely a, a the window the window the three lobed eye but better than that <laughs> I, you know, it's funny because we make fun of that ending a lot. And when we finally sat down and read that story, it's actually a pretty cool ending. <laughs> In context, it is a very good ending. Right. Out of context, it's fun to make fun of. Oh, absolutely. Weird Weird fiction is the source of a lot of humor. The All right. Of, uh, <laughs> you just don't write, ah. Uh, yeah. Maybe they meant to Maybe it was in the Kamal. Yeah, but it definitely has one of those. Right. All right. So there it is. Uh, a Spectral Hue by Craig L. Gidney. Yep. Uh, definitely check it out from yeah. Word Horde. Press. Yeah, it's coming out um, on what the. Uh, oh, yeah, the 18th. It is the 18th. Um, so the 18th of June. Yep. Oh, nice. So there you go. If it's um, if the 18th has already happened, you can pick it up. Yep, you can definitely pick it up. About to happen, you can, you can pick, pick it up in a couple of days. That's right. There's links in the comments. All right, so that's Woo! it for this time. Keep uh, <laughs> thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Uh, and keep 30 luck points. Yeah.